This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Maggie. My name is Brian. And today we have a very special guest with us today. Her name is Wendy Wen. And she is the co-founder and COO of Senrev, a luxury handbag company that marries beauty with versatility. Wendy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely. You know, Wendy, can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about your upbringing? You know, we want to learn about how you became the person that you are today. That's a really deep question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was born in China, um, in Chengdu, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were both scientists. My dad was a molecular biologist and my mom, uh, radiology, a uh, ra- radiology oncologist. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very like scientific family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I moved to the U S when I was four and a half because my dad was pursuing his PhD at USC. Mm-hmm. So very academic science biology-driven family. Like, my grandparents were all academics in the biology field. My grandma was like a doctor. And so they obviously encouraged me to pursue medicine. Um, and their rationale was, number one, um, you make a lot of money. And number two, it's a stable job. You're always going to need doctors, right. no matter what the economy. That was, like, their logic. Um, and so I grew up in Southern California after moving there when I was four and a half. Um, and then my parents had a second child, my brother, he's, he's eight years younger than me. We're really close. Um, and then my grandparents moved from China to live with us. Like we were a big family with, um, sometimes four sets of grandparents all under one roof. Um, sometimes they would move around and live with my aunts. Um, but it was a really, like, it was a really lovely childhood. I think one thing that stood out to me growing up was my parents didn't have very much, but they were very conscious of giving me every opportunity I had. Like any money they had, they allowed me to go to piano lessons, ballet lessons, any interests I evinced, they would try to uh, maximize and fulfill. So really like fortunate and blessed in that regard. And I think my journey to entrepreneurship is very um, circuitous. I would say earlier on, my initial goal was just to make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, because my parents were poor, you know, as a PhD student, my dad was making maybe thirty to $40,000 a year. My mom was helping doing protein science at the lab at USC, so also making like thirty to Mm -hmm. $40,000. Then my dad became an associate professor and it's still it's not like a high-paying job and my mom now does protein science work at Amgen she never got her medical license in the US because she didn't have time she was also taking care of me and so short story is finances were always very very tight in my family growing up I remember as a little girl I wanted um, a little teddy bear at Mervyn's Mervyn's now is out of business and my mom said it's $16. It's way too expensive. Mm-hmm. Like, sorry, we can't afford it. And I just remember thinking, man, like I wish I had money. I wish I had unlimited money. And my mom would say, Hey, if you want a lot of money, study hard, go to a top school here in the U S and you'll, you'll be able to make a lot of money. So that was my framework. I always thought, okay, I just got to go to school and make a lot of money. And that path actually led me to a place where I was like deeply unhappy. So, okay, that was like the starting driver. And then, you know, as I studied and like did well at school, I started to feed my identity with this view that I needed to have external accolades to prove that I was smart or high achieving. Like I needed to have 
the highest score on a test. I needed to get into the best college. I needed to get the best job. I, I, I started to require external accolades to show to myself that I was good. Like originally it was a path to get into college to make money, but then soon as I was growing up, it became part of my ego. It's like, I am a good person if I am considered smart and high achieving. Mm -hmm. So that fueled me, right? That kind of insecurity and need to feed my ego really fueled me. I ended up going to MIT, um, was initially studying medicine, brain and cognitive sciences, going down that path of like being a doctor to make money. But then I quickly discovered that if you want to make money, you should go into finance. Being a doctor is actually not the quickest way to make a buck. Um, and so I switched my major to, to business and actually I remember thinking I was such like an extrovert as well growing up that being stuck in a lab doing research was just not going to maximize my extroverted tendencies and, and business would actually utilize my interpersonal skills a lot more. So I was excited about pursuing finance and business. Ended up working in investment banking um, and was absolutely miserable. I think that experience taught me that chasing after money doesn't actually make you happy. So this is sort of like part of that journey, right? So I realized very quickly that um, I would much rather have like a few um, less, you know, zeros in my like bank account mm -hmm. and like weekends off yeah. and autonomy and work that had purpose. Um, and so kind of, once I realized that I knew I needed to, I knew I needed to um, make a pivot. And I always wanted to go to business school. I remember thinking when I was younger um, that you need a higher, this probably came from my father, you need a higher graduate degree mm -hmm. no matter what you do. I think it's because he's a PhD and they're all doctors. He's like, well, <laughs> business, or you need to get an MBA. So I think even as a little girl, I always thought, okay, no matter what I did, I wanted a graduate degree. Um, and business school seemed perfect. It was like two years for you to just figure out what you really wanted to do. So I ended up doing two years of investment banking. And because in banking, you recruit so quickly for private equity. I ended up doing two more years of private equity. So I did banking at Blackstone, private equity at TPG. Um, and in this whole time, I was just thinking, I need to figure out what I really want to do with my life. Mm -hmm. And I had this hypothesis that I wanted to be an entrepreneur because it sounded fun, right? You get to be your own boss. You can run your own business. You can create something. Um, but truthfully, I was very insecure about my ability to do it. I had all these doubts. I actually wrote my Stanford GSB essay about wanting to start an e-commerce company in the fashion space, and I didn't believe it. I remember writing it thinking, like, this is a dream. This is ideally what I would love to do, but I don't think I'm cut out for that. You know, I'm not risk-seeking enough. I'm not creative enough. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not um, strong enough. Like, I don't know how to be a leader. Like, I had all these, like, self-doubt mm -hmm. in my mind, um, but it helped me get into Stanford, so I got in, so I spent two years trying to kind of figure out what I really want to do with my life, and during the time I was in finance, I kind of, I, I realized quickly that I didn't love investing, because in my free time, instead of reading the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg, I was online shopping, <laughs> I was reading purse blog, I was going on guilt every day at noon to see what deals I could buy. I was planning out my next designer, you know, luxury purchase. Mm -hmm. um, and I think another thing I was always very passionate about, especially working in finance, was um, just female empowerment and feminism. Because I, as a you know, minority female working in an industry that's predominantly white male, mm -hmm. I felt inherent biases against just women in general. You know, I saw mentors who were women kind of quit after they have babies just because the work-life balance did not, um, did not sort of encourage the family, right? Um, and so at Stanford, during my two years, I said to myself, I'm going to spend two years to really figure out what I want to do. And I want to explore, number one, feminism and female empowerment. Number two, retail in fashion, and then number three, entrepreneurship. So I 
you know, even though I wasn't confident enough to be an entrepreneur, I was very curious. So I did a lot of what you guys are doing now, which is talk to different entrepreneurs. I took classes where entrepreneurs would come and tell us about their journey. Um, I took a class that was like an incubator class called Lean Launchpad, where you start with an idea and a team and you have to like make an, a minimal viable product by the end of the course. I kind of break down the steps of starting a company step by step. Um, so that kind of scratched my entrepreneurial itch. And actually that experience helped me realize, oh my gosh, there's actually not a big difference between me and other successful entrepreneurs. And by the way, success shouldn't be defined by external accolades. You can define it yourself. There's a lot of different definitions of success for entrepreneurship. I used to think that a successful entrepreneur looked like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, somebody who had been coding in his basement since he was five. Yeah. Um, and his success is like a multi-billion dollar super unicorn. That's actually not the case. So at Stanford, I encountered many entrepreneurs who had varying levels of success and they defined it themselves. I was incredibly inspired by this one woman who started this um, flex work um, network, kind of like Upwork, but for women who were stay-at-home moms. Mm -hmm. And she didn't raise any VC money. It was uh -huh. Strapped. She generates, you know, three, four hundred thousand dollars of cash every year for herself. And I'm like, that's a really great type of success. And so I ended up realizing quickly that I could be an entrepreneur too. So that's one. Two, fashion. So I was part of Retail Club and we led these trips to Paris and Milan to visit the C level executives at Chanel, Hermes, Prada, Louis Vuitton. And I just loved that whole experience. I ended up getting an internship at Chanel in between my first and second year of business school. Um, and through that experience, I just, I was like, oh my gosh, first of all, I learned a lot about branding and how these brands have been able to stay so relevant despite being so old. And then number two, I just learned how much opportunity there was because they were so scared of digital, so scared of digital and so, um, scared to move and change and innovate. And also they don't have to. That's another interesting thing about luxury is they can stay exactly the way they are and people will still buy them because of the brand. So I was like, hmm, this is interesting. There's a lot of opportunity because luxury incumbents are not yet sort of grasping onto the power of digital and how consumer needs are evolving. And then the last piece, feminism, I was the co-president of women in management. I just did all these. I did this too. Like I interviewed various women who were in leadership positions and they inspired me to kind of take the leap of faith and do something bold. So when I was graduating from the GSB, I started talking to my co-founder, Coral. She's actually a GSB alum who we had connected through mutual friends. And I just, I was like, I don't want to start, I don't want to get a job. Like it just doesn't feel right. There's no job out there. That's that exciting for me. And she's like, I, I have this idea to start a handbag company. Do you want to join me? And I jumped at that opportunity because I kind of, everything I just told you, right? Like I was already doing retail club exploration. I loved, um, you know, I love the idea of like trying something new. And I think going through the Stanford experience and seeing other entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. Got, helped me get over my fears and insecurities in myself. And so ended up starting SunRev um, with Coral at the end of, started working on it at the end of 2015, like October 2015. I graduated in June 2015, started it, started working on it full-time October 2015, and then we launched the company in, in November 2016. I just rambled on for a long time. <laughs> wow, no, that was amazing. I feel like you kind of just provided like a film or a movie of your life, which is really insightful. Yeah, it's extremely insightful. To <laughs> your upbringing, you know, what you currently value, and that, that relates a lot to, to myself, at least, you know, mm -hmm. just growing up without much money. And then for me, getting into real estate because I actually wanted to make a lot of money. And right. when you did, it wasn't that exciting anymore. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to sound like condescending in any way, but once you hit like financial freedom, you're just like, okay, what else is there? What what else am I capable of doing? You start asking you, you start asking yourself these questions, you know, that only you can answer. Mm -hmm. Only you can make yourself happy. So what makes you happy? Totally. 
And I can kind of see that in your journey already. I think for you, it's things that, that you're, I feel like with you is like your, your motivation comes from your own insecurity in a way. Yep. Where you yep. feel like maybe I'm not good to, good enough to do this. So I'm kind of curious, but at the same yeah. time, you have so much accolades to back up what you want to do. Mm-hmm. You're like, hey, like I've been a really good student. I've been in investment making. I got the best jobs out there. Why can't I compete with the best? You know, mm-hmm. I think that's the mentality that separates you from the rest. It's like once you realize that these people that you look up to are just like you and they're no smarter than you. Mm-hmm. That's when you start, your mindset starts switching and you can start to compete with them. You know, that's when your, things open up. And it's crazy when that happens too, because when you open up, when you open up your subconscious mind, you are, are able to spot opportunities out there that you didn't see before because now you know yourself a lot better. Yeah. You know, and I, I really admire that, that story that you just told. One thing I'm curious about too is you know, you, you went to great schools, you got a great job, you made a lot of money. And and then to have that conversation with your parents and be like, hey, I'm not happy right now. <laughs> you know, what kind of, what was that conversation like? And how did you talk to them, talk to them into supporting you into like being an entrepreneur? Yeah, that was going to be my next question too. And I'm curious because then your parents are in medicine and you were going to go that route too, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure they had some influence to yeah. you for you to go to that route but you know obviously medicine you felt like it wasn't for yourself and you switched to finance and investment banking you know mm-hmm. what was their you know whole perception of that and then for you to go from investment banking to entrepreneurship you know and it's very tied to you know asian culture a lot of asian parents want us to become doctors or go to the medicine route or you know become lawyers or something very safe you know because a lot of them immigrated here they just want us to have a bright future, have a mm-hmm. safe job, you know, be very stable. But yeah, I'm very curious, you know, how do they take that? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there were there was the point when I asked when I called my dad as a sophomore in college and said, Hey dad, I'm not gonna be pre-med anymore. I'm <laughs> switching over into finance. And I gave him my reasoning. I said, You told me that doctors make money. Well, I found that they don't make that much money in investment banking. Reason number one. Reason number two, I was like, I did this summer internship um, at Amgen where my mom worked and I did lab work and I was like, I was just so bored. I was so (laughs) bored because it's a lot of being an academic and a research and science requires a lot of patience, Mm -hmm. a lot of curiosity. You're kind of putting together an experiment yeah. By paying things, it has to be perfect. I was also really bad at that, at shaking hands. And and then you wait four hours for it to incubate, and then you check the results, and then sometimes the results are terrible, and you're like, I don't know if it's because my pipetting was bad or mm-hmm. we're not looking at the right part of the experiment. And so it just wasn't for me, and I explained that to him, and he paused, and then he said, you know what? You should do what you love, and I think you're really – um, capable and you'll be successful, whatever you do, I just won't be able to help you. He's like, you know, I'm an immigrant. I don't know much about this country. The only thing I do know is science. The only thing our, you know, we know is science and medicine and biology. And before we could help you, but now we can't help you. I'm like, that's my dad. We'll be fine. Um, they were very supportive. I would say overall, I'm very lucky. And my parents gave me a lot of trust. Um, and they trusted my judgment. They trusted my decision-making maybe because I'm the oldest, it's definitely not the same with my younger brother. My parents were way more tiger parenty to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also more self-motivated because I think I was, you know, I was the immigrant child. I came from China. I, I understood the need to kind of fend for myself. Um, so that was the first touch point. And the second one, when I, when I had decided to start a company after graduating from the GSV, instead of um, going into like, going back into finance, I had plenty of offers to go back into private equity. Um, you know, they, they were also very understanding. They, it, like my dad was very supportive. He was, my mom and dad were just like, okay, yeah, cool. I mean, sounds hard, but go for it. And he actually admitted to me like a couple weeks ago that he had for sure thought that I was just going to work on it for like a few months and then stop or that I was going to struggle along for many, many years before I saw success and that he's been very surprised 
by how quickly Sunrat has grown. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say my parents have all have been pretty good about both of those transitions, and I think it's it's because they really trusted me as the older child. Now my Chinese extended family. It's so funny because when I go back to China and visit them, I remember like my great uncle and my grandfather's brother just like pulled me aside and was just so like so concerned. He's like, Wendy, you went to MIT and now you're peddling handbags? Isn't that such a big waste? <laughs> oh. And I was just like, oh, I didn't even know what to say. I just laughed. I was like, oh, okay, I'm having fun. He was just like, I'm so concerned. Such a waste. <laughs> I think in their minds, yeah. I have a like, marketplace shop or something where I'm like selling handbags. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. I like how you said that your father said he was very surprised. And I think that that is like the Asian parents way of saying that they're very proud of you. Mm -hmm. But they just won't say yeah. that because they don't show emotion. Yeah. They don't they don't go as far as saying that, but he does he he like shares our articles all over WeChat. <laughs> They're very active on WeChat and he's he did say he's like, Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah. Yeah, I mean there's a lot I think the biggest thing with Asian parents is that you have to show that you're dependable, you're mm -hmm. trust that you're trustworthy, that whatever choices that you make, you know parents are always especially asian parents are always theory down the path of being safe mm -hmm. you know for, for them being safe is everything that's their version of success as you defined earlier you know and i think it was for me too and that's why i i have to admit i was kind of a brand whore you know i was mm -hmm. like trying to get the right school names on my resume trying to get the right like investment banks and private equity firms and um it it finally, I think I got to a point where I'm like, oh, I've collected enough of these resume builders. Like I should feel confident enough now to take a leap of faith. And even if I fail at this point, I have enough of like a cushion on my resume to help me find another job. Um, but I remember thinking, pursuing that external set of validation made me deeply unhappy. Like I was deeply, deeply unhappy when I was working in private equity because I was constantly comparing myself to other people. I was comparing myself to another analyst who might've gotten a higher rating and comparing myself to another friend who, you know, already has another like really high paying hedge fund or private equity job lined up. There was always another mountain or another peak that might be higher than mine. And by having an external um, kind of pillar of success, made my made my day-to-day -day really unhappy because I just never felt like it was enough and even now I think sometimes I, I have to stop myself and not compare Sunrev to other companies but in a grander scheme it's harder to compare right because every company is so different I'm carving out my own path yeah. and I try to remind myself today every single day that I myself am good enough already I don't have to prove it to anyone Mm -hmm. And doing this and building Sunrep is because of this incredible journey that I get to go on, right? Like, yeah. there are three reasons why people start companies. One is to make a ton of money. Two is to build a great company. Three is to change the world. Yeah. And for me, the one that I weigh myself the heaviest, most heavily on is building something. I really like thinking about building the team, building a product that didn't exist before, building the culture, expanding that, building a marketing footprint, building our brand. And so I try to focus on that and like thinking about how I am bettering myself through this journey of building rather than focusing on our revenue or, you know, fundraise rounds, et cetera. It's hard. It's super hard. I mean, I'm still, I still catch myself falling into like, anxiety and insecurity and in like fear a lot of fear and stress comes from that but yeah i'm more aware of it now yeah yeah, but I, yeah. yeah I think you do bring up a really good point too i think that there's so much about mental health that asian cultures never really talk about mm -hmm. you know the fact that you felt anxiety you felt insecure you felt you weren't good enough you know all this really stems back to somewhat of how we were raised you know our own upbringing too and you know, I kind of want to deviate this conversation and talk a little more about mental health mm -hmm. you know I feel like for most entrepreneurs 
people look at your success as you know monetary things like how many nice things can you own how big is your house and how nice is your car but i think the one people the one thing that people especially asian entrepreneurs kind of neglect is mental health mm-hmm. you, know, like, you know when you're facing enormous stress like this and making really tough decisions almost on a daily basis you know, we could we can only imagine like all the random decisions that you make a split second on a daily basis how do you deal with this amount of stress and how do you keep yourself going and motivated every single day? Yeah. And going back to, you know, when you were feeling like you couldn't start your own business, right? Mm-hmm. You weren't that type of person or it just wasn't the right fit lifestyle for you. But mm-hmm. then you shifted, you know, when you started, you know, seeing all of these characteristics that you have, you, you notice that maybe I do have this entrepreneurial spirit inside of me. Mm-hmm. How are you able to make that shift too? Because that ties back to your mental health as exactly. well, right? And that's something yeah. we really want to highlight right now too. Yeah. A lot of people feel this way, mm-hmm. you know, whether you're doing anything in life, you always get compared to your brother and sister, your cousin, your family, your friend, or not. Yeah. <laughs> the list goes on. You know, we just yeah. want to make sure that we can uh, leverage your story to really inspire others to follow down the same path. Yeah. So to, to answer your first question around my mental health and how I take care of that, I think it's definitely a journey. I think I've gotten better at it over the years. Um, but my darkest point, I was literally not sleeping. I would go 48 hours without sleep. Like I could not fall asleep. The moment I lay in bed, I would be so tired during the day. And then the moment I'm in bed, I'm like wide awake and tense. And stress and then I start worrying about not sleeping and then I'm just up all night so I definitely struggled a lot from an insomnia perspective um, but I quickly took action to try to fix it and I think number one is getting therapy getting coaching so I, I definitely seek out those types of professional services um, and I find them to be incredibly helpful like I have a regular coach that I talk to a regular therapist um, I leaned on my husband a little bit, but it also created tension in our marriage. You know, he shouldn't be filling that role of a therapist. So we started getting a marriage counselor. (laughs) Like I have a whole team. I have an acupuncturist who does like massage for me. Um, Yeah. So I definitely invested in service providers to help me get to a better place. Oh, I even worked with a a sleep hypnotherapist. Wow. and then do therapy on me. Yeah. So now I'm asleep and is in a much better place. Um, and um, I think it's, it's a combination of like having those service providers. And also I think for me, it's been really important to number one, exercise and number two, meditate. Mm-hmm. So now I, I read Atomic Habits and I, I thought that book changed my life. It's all about, I love all these little things. I have a little habits tracker, all these little things added up just makes you a lot better. And so I really make sure I carve out time for exercise and for meditation and obviously sleep. Like sleep is so, so critical. When I don't sleep, I tend to be more pessimistic and more depressed. Um, But mindset wise, I think the thing that I am forcing myself to constantly remind myself about is that this is just a job. Like Sunrev is still just a job. It's not my identity. It's not my ego. It doesn't, it's not a measurement of how good I am. And if this job and this project doesn't work out, I can always get another job. Mm-hmm. Literally get another job or start another project. And so having that level of kind of objectivity is also incredibly helpful. And then a way I triage is I always ask myself if a problem comes up, number one, is someone gonna die? Number two, is the company going to die because of this? Number three, is this really important for me to handle right now? Mm-hmm. And number four, like, who can I delegate to? So I kind of triage everything that way, and that's also really helpful. Like when coronavirus first hit, it's very stressful, right? But, you know, I'm safe, I'm healthy, no one, no one in my family is going to die. The company's not going to die either. Yeah, our sales is not going to grow as much this year as last year. Mm-hmm. It's not going to kill us. And then it's just a matter of thinking, figuring out how to triage our strategy and pivot. Mm-hmm. 
I love that. I love how open you are about, you know, talking about therapy and like marriage counseling. I feel like in a lot of areas, people have like this bad connotation, like, oh, I don't need a therapist. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't need a life coach. Like I got everything on my own. And people have that ego, you know, and there was actually a post in AHN. um, Someone had admitted that they don't feel like they have that entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, how do you actually go about that? And how do you overcome that? Right. And a lot of people recommended see a therapist. There are Mm -hmm. strengths within you. You know, everyone has their own strengths. Everyone has their own weaknesses. And for you to realize your strength, that's the power, you know, and and for you to like see a therapist that actually shows strength because you Mm -hmm. want to improve on yourself. Right. You actually get to a better place, whether that be, you know, yourself or your significant other that shows a lot of strength. That's your own sense of awareness too. Yeah. You know, you are fully aware of what you're good at and what you're not good at. Mm -hmm. You know, and you got, you got in such a, I would say an entrepreneurial mindset that if you can delegate these things away, even if it's like meditation or therapy or coaching, why not? You would do it because that's the best use of your time. (laughs) And I can see that from an entrepreneur perspective, you know? Yeah. Yeah, We have the same compartments through our day to exact same list. You know, what can we delegate? What can we do? Is it, we didn't answer it right now. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's really powerful. You know, your sense of awareness is great. You know, we can kind of tell already that, now, even though you keep saying like, hey, look, I'm going to have a plan B, a plan C, you're, you're not going to need that. Yeah. You know, the greatest successful people that we talk to on the podcast are people like yourself with a great sense of awareness. Mm-hmm. They know when to push, when to, when to take a step back, when to delegate. Because if you don't know these things, you're going to fail so hard, mm-hmm. you know, because one person can't handle everything. Yeah. Let me be clear. I'm not good at it. <laughs> I'm still learning. I'm still, I'm terrible at, you know. <laughs> We're all learning. We're all learning <laughs> together. I didn't have the best like managerial like idols to look up to because mm-hmm. you know, finance everybody's a micromanager. So mm-hmm. I am far from being good at delegating and being a great leader and being a great manager. But I see that as a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. I see that as this is a really important skill to develop as part mm-hmm. of life. And whatever I do next, like, this is really important. So I'm going to figure out ways to be better at triaging, delegating, letting go. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're all here to learn together. Yeah. And like you said before, there's really no one there out there, especially within, within the Asian community, to even look up to hear stuff like this. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact you're so open and talking about it, people are going to look up to you. You want to hear these things, you know? Because I mean, it, I remember listening to a lot of entrepreneurs because like, like I mentioned, I was inspired by listening to entrepreneurs. And the thing that really made me feel insecure was hearing all of them say that they don't sleep. Oh, wow. <laughs> Not yeah. <all> sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> so common. I listened to this Tori Birch interview and she said um, she sleeps four to five hours a night. And I'm like, oh <laughs> I can't be an entrepreneur. I need seven hours. I do. Mm. If I get less than seven, I just can't function. I can do a few nights of less than seven but consistently it would it would destroy me but so I'm like I wish more entrepreneurs talked about how much they value sleep and how much they need sleep because mm. I do and so now I'm like I need to talk about that and people don't really talk about how hard entrepreneurship is yeah, yeah so they don't it's extremely difficult you know mm. and we kind of want to pivot more towards like your entrepreneur journey into like how's the how's the money raising process for Sunrev like yeah what kind mm-hmm. of hurdles did you face? Did you face a lot of discrimination, racism as you're raising money? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know that um, you you guys went through, you and Coral went through a Series A funding. Congratulations, yeah. by the way. Congratulations. Um, and there's this whole story about, you know, you it being led by Sonia Brown as more West Venture Partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that there was this underlying reason because, you know, they are about women entrepreneurship, women empowerment, and she's a woman herself. Talk a little bit about, you know, that experience of like why you wanted to partner with this um, individual specifically. Mm-hmm. And women in like female empowerment. Yeah. I mean, let me, again, be honest. It's like a brutal game fundraising. You, I think we emailed or reached out and talked to 31 different firms and got rejected like oh, wow. 28 times. <laughs> so we had only three term sheets at the end. Yeah. Uh, but Thankfully, I think, I think it's very serendipitous who ends up working out and who doesn't. Um, I think with us, 
um, there was no overt discrimination that I felt, but the, the things that I heard again and again would be like, oh, my, my you know, wife didn't like your bag, so we're gonna pass. You know, we had, a, we had an investor who was really intrigued by our pitch and our numbers and our traction, and then he, his wife went and bought one of our bags and was like, I don't like it. And then he passed, you know? So it's kind of like, she's one person, one data point, and you're gonna let your wife speak for all of women. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's such a big market, right? Like you can't just trust. I think that the challenge isn't so much over discrimination. It's more that with investors, a lot of times they need to have a gut instinct about a business especially at the series A stage, right? When it's still really young. Um, and when the investor hit himself is not a target customer and can't understand the value proposition of the end product, it's really hard for them to have that natural gut instinct. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Because most of the time it's like emotion-based. It's very emotion-based in yeah. this stage. Very emotion-based. <laughs> it's really emotion-based. And, and I think what worked with Sonia and, and Catherine from Norwest, like Catherine's... Um, she was the girl who sourced the, the, the deal, is that they kind of got it immediately. Even in our like initial pitches and conversations, they were just like throwing out ideas that were totally on point. They had um, looked at a lot of companies in the luxury space and the consumer space, so they just knew the business and they knew the, the space really well. Like for some of the previous investors who rejected us, they would ask me questions like, why would anyone spend over a thousand dollars online on a bag? Mm -hmm. That's crazy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> net -a -porte. Like there are, there are examples out there and they just weren't familiar enough with it. And I think having, um, this, you know, having Norwest who just understood and got it was really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. And I, I will say like, I am so, I'm, I can't be happier with them as our partner. Mm -hmm. After one our first board meeting, we all went, like me, Coral, my co-founder, Sonia, Catherine, went to a bar across the street and then talked about our fertility journeys. Like, oh, wow. Egg. Like, <laughs> Sonia, how many kids did you have? Oh, my God, you had four. What was that like? How, how was pregnancy? How was giving birth? Like, where do you see that in Silicon Valley, you know, where yeah. mm -hmm. the board member and the entrepreneur goes and talks about <laughs> fertility? So. I'm really proud and, 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 and grateful for the, the partners that we ended up with. But frankly, there weren't very many. There weren't very many female partners that we pitched. Most of them just happened to be male. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And that's a huge lesson yeah. for every, everyone out there who is fundraising right now, too. Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of us don't retake rejection very well. And we think one or two rejections is like, oh, our idea is not validated. We're not good enough. Yeah. It's not true at all because this is where it really tests your passion. How passionate are you about this idea, this product to continue pushing? Because when you go out there and fundraise money, typically you want to have people invest in you because they believe in you, not because you're profitable or anything like that. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, you want them to believe in you. And the honest yeah. truth is you only need one. <laughs> It's a dating game. You just need yeah. one. You just need one, right? Yeah. yeah. Oftentimes, it's not about you. It's about them. It's about right. their experience. Mm -hmm. you know? So we've had people pass because they're like, oh, I invested in a fashion company before and it did poorly. So mm -hmm. I just stay away from fashion altogether. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that is not a reflection of you or your business because mm -hmm. fashion companies are all created differently. Like You can't assume one fashion company is the same as the next. Mm -hmm. um, but they are scarred by their experience and so they're gonna pass. So it's important to not take it personally and to just send out 10 more emails, you know? Get one rejection, okay, great. Let me see, let me look at my network on LinkedIn. Who else do I know? Who else can I email? Yeah, that's a really great point. And that's, it, you know, all the articles about you and Coral getting Series A funding, those articles don't talk about how many times you guys have tried, you know, all the hard work that you guys put into it. It's all about the glamour these articles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People don't see the behind the scenes, you know, so it's I very... So many, I talked to a lot of entrepreneur friends when I was getting advice for the fundraising process, and it's all the same story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. like they would be like, I got 40 rejections and the last one who happened to say yes was like Sequoia. Or like, <laughs> you know, like, so it's very, it's very serendipitous and you just, it's a numbers game. 
you just have to go out and pound the pavement and, and talk to everybody and yeah. be ready for rejection and, and grow and improve. Like after every single pitch, we would write down all the questions they had asked us and then incorporate those questions into the, into the pitch so that the next pitch was even better and the next pitch was even better. So every time we were going out, we were getting better and better. That's great advice. So when you and Coral had started SunRev, I'm sure you had, you know, some people talking about the market is too saturated, you know, the, the, the handbag market is way too saturated. There's way too many brands. But, you know, when Brian and I went to SunRev for the speaking panel a couple months ago, I saw the bags for my first time and I thought they were beautiful. You know, they looked like the quality of Celine, you know, but at a way more affordable price. And I feel like you guys really disrupted the market. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of like people saying stuff like that, like, oh, the market is way too saturated. You guys aren't really gonna get anywhere with another handbag brand. How are you and Coral able to respond to those type of comments? It's a very great question. We got that all the time. And our answer is that, you know, the handbags, first of all, the handbag space is really big. Mm -hmm. It's a $50 billion global market and luxury handbags, and it's an expandable market. Handbag is a category, unlike Uber or Facebook, where it's not winner takes all. If you convince a woman that this brand or this product is desirable, she can add it to her collection. You know, she can shop at um, Longchamp, Coach, Louis Vuitton, Chanel. She can own all of those brands. So the challenge is on you to develop your own unique value proposition and your own unique brand value such that a woman feels like she needs it. So that's point number one, that the market is unique in that it can be saturated and you can build a billion-dollar business if you're a coach and you can also build a billion-dollar business if you're like Chanel or Hermes. Mm -hmm. Secondly, for us, we have a unique value proposition that we've identified, which is this gap in the market between something that is really beautiful, high-end, made in Italy, like the Celine's and Fendi's of the world, and something that you can actually work and use day to day, to day right? Like you can bring to work and can put a laptop in. Um, right now, women tend to have to make a trade-off between those two. So that was our initial, like, differentiation. There really wasn't something that kind of allowed you to have both. And we really wanted to kind of get at that. And that is the pillar of our brand. Too. We're all about this woman, this modern woman who is not only a, a fashionista, but she might be a CEO, a mom. You know, she's, she's not boxed into one role in her life. She is a multifaceted woman. And our handbags and our products reflect that modern yeah. electric offer. And we think there's a lot of legs to this. This, this customer because her needs are changing so much compared to the traditional luxury brands mm -hmm. and the traditional luxury brands can't move fast enough to like reach her needs. Her needs are, she needs versatility. She cares about brand and quality, but not logos. Right. She right. is traveling all the time. She cares about the mission and sustainability. Um, she's omni-channel. She's not uniquely offline or uniquely online. She's everywhere. She discovers things through influencers and online magazines and Instagram and not necessarily through Vogue and fashion brands. And for us, we have that unique insight about our customers so we believe we can serve her better than some of the existing companies. Yeah, I, re I really like, you know, what everything you just said so far, you know, like the brand quality, like the mission of your product. It really reminds me of like the early days of like Rolexes and Nike. You know, yeah. even back then, like, Rolexes were considered for like the, the everyday working man, yeah. you know, and over time, like it evolved <laughs> into a luxury brand that you can't not not have once you hit wealth, you know. The same thing with Nike too. When they first came out, it was David versus Goliath against Adidas, mm -hmm. you know. Totally. Yeah, they people can't imagine that. Yeah, people can't imagine that now. Like that Nike used to be so much smaller than Adidas mm -hmm. and in Puma too, you know, the Puma yeah. brothers and Nike brothers. I mean, Puma and, and Adidas, Adidas were yeah. brothers in, in Germany. But then, but Nike started competing, saying that they're creating everyday product that for you know for best performance uses that cool like everyday athlete uses our product. And that 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 a lot reminds me of your product, mm -hmm. and we're super excited to see where you'll be ten years from now, twenty years from now. And even That's where, that is like yeah. the best compliment you can pay me because I I love Shoe Dog that book. Yes, mm -hmm. my favorite book. 
so good. It, it, it is very reminiscent of Senrev and like everything he talked about. I was like, oh my gosh, this totally resonates with me. And so, yeah, I, I feel like if Nike could do it, we could do it, you know? Of course. You just have to believe and keep on innovating, mm -hmm. you know? That's what you have to keep on doing. Times will always change. And even five, 10 years, 20 years from now, people are gonna forget that Sunrev was started for this mission. Now now yeah. they see it like the same caliber as like Coach and Celine and all the luxury yeah. brands, you know? Yeah. It just takes time for us, for, for consumers to see it as a luxury. Mm -hmm. that's, that's all it takes. And that kind of brings us back to the point, what kind of marketing strategy did you use to really get your, your brand out there? So we had the insight that, well, first of all, it all comes from that customer, right? Who is our customer? How does she discover new brands? And we had done a ton of customer interviews in the very beginning, even before we started developing our products. And we knew that women liked Celine. We knew they liked Givenchy. We knew that they were tired of like Louis Vuitton monograms. So we kind of incorporated all of that into our design. Um, but with regards to how we, um, you know, with regards to how we actually marketed it, we also thought about her discovery journey. How does she decide to spend, you know, $1,000 on a new brand? Mm -hmm. And it's usually through word of mouth, right. people that she trusts. It might be through an online publication that she reads, like a Refinery29 or, you know, Goop, those types of publications. It might be through normal press, like New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Yeah. It might be through celebrities and influencers that she herself looks up to as style icons. And so in the beginning, our challenge was to show up in these places where she seeks inspiration. And so we networked our way into getting our bags into the hands of celebrities and influencers for free. So we would network with their stylists and gift them product and just hope that they're seeing out and about wearing it. And the challenge was to make sure the product was attractive enough on their own that these celebrities and influencers would wear it for free. And they did. So that was great. And then it was networking. We were literally just selling our bags hand-to-hand -hand combat. Like we would do trunk shows and get people to come over to our house and we would sell our bags from our house. We would do trunk shows with our investors. Like it was, it was literally hustling in the beginning. But we were able to get our bags purchased by partners at Goldman, partners at McKinsey, partners at Bain, partners at law firms, um, C-level executives at tech firms like Lynn Jurek, who is the CEO and founder of Sunrun, carried our bag in this magazine interview that she had done. You know? And so these women were our early adopters and started influencing women within their organization. So there are actually private equity firms where like all the female deal professionals carry a Sunrise bag because the partner wore a bag. And so that was like the word of mouth. And then we made sure to pitch all of this sort of early success to PR and to, to get into those articles that I was telling you about. And once we kind of build that foundation of brand, such that if somebody surfs on Rev on Google, they'll see proof points. Right. That's kind of how you kind of build a brand. It's like other people talking about you, you, you're not talking about you. Only until we had that foundation did we start turn on, start turning on paid um, Facebook and Google ads. Mm -hmm. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen Sunrev blow up in the last couple of years and, you know, I keep seeing it on my Instagram, on, on Facebook, everywhere. And that's so true. Like if I see a celebrity that I admire or a role model mm -hmm. who's wearing that brand or that handbag, that's like automatic, like, oh, I need to get that, you know? Right. I can relate to this part of the conversation, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> So we know that you have a flagship store in San Francisco and we were there too. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like opening that store with Coral? And were you kind of like honed in on San Francisco? Were you thinking of other locations? I also want to ask one more follow-up question too. How is it working with Coral too? Yeah. How do you yeah. guys solve the problems? You know, but you can answer uh, Maggie's questions oh, yeah, yeah. first and then. Yeah. So the store opening um, was an evolution. We actually, um, started off working completely remotely like when we were just three employees three people like me Coral and one first employee we would work from our apartments from cafes and then we got to a certain size I think we were like six people where we we're like okay we should probably get an office <laughs> mm -hmm. we're gonna get an office we might as well allow customers to come and see and feel and touch the bag so our first 
office slash showroom was actually in Union Square on the fourth floor on top of Hermes. It was like a sublet space that we converted into a nice showroom and we had a conference room that we used as an office to work out of. Um, and the reason for that is, well, we, you know, we needed a place to work and we might as well make some money out of it. So we actually would make, you know, 10 times our rent per month just from the sales from that office. That's awesome. How we were thinking about subsidizing the rent. And then we got to a certain size where we were outgrowing that office and that's why we opened the flagship store um, on 441 Jackson Street. Um, and it was a similar mentality. We actually worked from out of back. The back of it is, is an office for our team in front of it is, is a store. And again, we come from this omni-channel perspective where we expect our customers to want to have offline touch points, right? Like mm -hmm. it's important for them to do their research online, you know, see some influencers with it, but they, they sometimes do want to see, feel, and touch, and that's the point of conversion. And so that was like a big reason why we decided to invest in a flagship, like floor level store. It's because we believe that this would help with our conversion, in which it absolutely has. And it gives us this opportunity to build a community. We can hold events like the one you attended. We can, um, you know, do collaborations with other influencers and other other brands um it's just it's a great way to build community and the reason we're in san francisco is because we actually believe that having that tech and innovative dna sets us apart from the companies that are in new york and la mm -hmm. um and we think of ourselves as wanting to be like the nikes or like the teslas and apples of fashion right the way apple brought design to the world of consumer electronics we want to bring technology and versatility and function to the world of high-end fashion design. And there's no better place for that kind of entrepreneurial spirit than Silicon Valley. And then to answer your question about co-founder relationship, I mean, from the very beginning, I think it was really important for Coral and I to vet each other. And, and I have to thank her for inviting me to join her as her co-founder. And she told me that for her, the most important three things she looked at were number one, chemistry, number two, trust, and number three, vision. So chemistry is just intangible. Either you work well together or you don't. Either you're synergistic and you, your energies are you know, great for each other or you're not. And we happen to have really incredible work chemistry. And trust is, is, is like deeper than just a level of like integrity. It's more that do you trust the other person to speak on behalf of the company when you're not in the room? Do you trust the other person to just have a natural instinct for the right decision? Um, and she felt, she felt like I had that. And then number three, vision. It's like, do we both believe in the same long-term vision for Sunred? Which we do. And the long-term vision is we want to be that next generation luxury brand that is much bigger than just you know, handbags that marries versatility with design. So we want that vein to kind of spread across all different categories, just starting with handbags. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, everything you mentioned about working with a co-founder mm -hmm. is, it's difficult, you know, mm -hmm. essentially you are dating another person. Yeah. You're like, yeah. and the worst with entrepreneurship can be pretty ugly. You know? <laughs> and they're common too. We yeah. definitely have disagreements. I mean, we, we have disagreements and arguments all the time. And sometimes we hash it out in front of our team and they get really nervous because we sound very contentious. But I think what's really great about me and Coral is we're both so like logical. And so we don't take anything personally. Like we can yell at each other and, and hash out something, hash out a disagreement. And then we'll be able to like go right back and focus on the vision. We're both very much like we're both trying to work towards the same vision. Yeah. And so we might have different perspectives mm -hmm. and it's important to hash out those, those perspectives such as we mm -hmm. come to, we come to a better decision. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, that's a really good approach to solving problems too. I think yeah. that whereas when corporate, if you kind of have that, you know, behavior is considered unprofessional, mm -hmm. but yeah. I, I think that's, that's not the most, that's, I don't think that's the best way to solve your problems. You're highly professional. It means that a lot of stuff gets swept under the rug. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing really gets done. The problems that you have is like, oh, I hate talking blah, blah, blah. And then it gets swept under the rug. Yeah. I feel like the way that you, you structure it is the coach is very transparent. It's very safe mm -hmm. to express disagreements because disagreements are the things 
that kind of help you grow as a business too. You need to have these, I don't want to, I don't want to say often, but you need to have them. You know, if you, if you don't talk about it, you never, you're never going to fix anything. Yeah. And I, I like the, the culture that you guys built already. It's being up transparent and safe to express your opinions, mm -hmm. you know, the danger. It's yeah. It's super, super important. People, people on my team change my mind all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I will echo what Brian said. I think in corporate, it's like, it's so easy to like not speak up because exactly. it's like, Oh, the executives will take care of it. You know, like, I'm just not going to say anything if people are yeah. going to argue with me. And if you're an entrepreneur, you obviously, if, if it's your product and you have passion it's for baby. it, it's your baby. Like, of course you're going to speak up, you know? Yeah. It kind of reminds me of uh, Ray Dalio. The way that he structured his company is that if everyone's too polite and you have something wrong, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, makes sure, he makes sure is that everyone has an opportunity to criticize him and his business mm -hmm. to improve. Yeah. And I think that it's really important to do something like that. And that's how you're going to improve. You have to listen to the ugly things you don't like that hurt your self-esteem. Yeah. And that's okay because your team's right there to pick you back up and do it again. Yeah. But those arguments are always short term. You know, you exactly. have to think about the long term vision. And it seems like you and Coral are on the same page with that. So that's really inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any tips and advice for entrepreneur entrepreneurs right now, especially Asian entrepreneurs and female Asian entrepreneurs that want to get started, that yeah. feel the same way you do? What kind of advice would you give to them and essentially yourself when you first started? Yeah. I think in the beginning, I had a lot of doubts and I had Coral to thank for pulling me out. She's very confident and I always have to try to adopt some of her confidence. And something that I would tell a female woman or female Asian female is um, you tend to underestimate yourself versus a guy would tend to overestimate himself. So you need to adjust your mental barometer to be slightly more arrogant and then you'll be normal. So like, that's something I see with my husband all the time. He always overestimates his capabilities and he calls out that he thinks I always underestimate my capabilities or my achievements. Um, and I think that's just something women struggle with in general. It's, we are, we're naturally more focused on what, we are doing wrong or what we um, could be doing better or the downside scenario and not focusing on that 1% chance that it can be knocked out into the ballpark. And I remember Coral saying to me, she was like, just imagine like if somebody else could do it, why, why can't we, you know, you should be confident enough in your ability that we are the ones to kind of make this potential come true. She was like, if you agree that it's possible for, this next generation luxury brand to exist, let's agree that that's possible, right? It's hard to say that it's impossible. It's happened all over the decades with other categories, right? Like Nike. And I was like, yeah, it's possible. She's like, okay, if it's possible, wh what makes you think that you can't be the person to make this possibility into a reality? Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's helpful to have that framework. So just always over, just make sure you're not like, doubting yourself unnecessarily, I would say. Doubting yourself, essentially. Yeah. And then two, I think another thing I would tell my younger self is that every problem is surmountable if you have time to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's just a matter of making sure you have the right, have time, meaning either you have enough cash runway or, you know, you're able to fundraise. But for example, if you, if you fail with the first collection for a set of products you could fold and the company can go under or you can pivot and find another set of products maybe handbags didn't work maybe we should go into beauty or skincare like there's always a possibility of being successful if you don't give up and if you don't run out of money <laughs> so success is I think Vince Lombardi once said I never lost a game sometimes I just ran out of time that applies to entrepreneurship too you only fail if you give up. I uh, absolutely agree beautiful. with that yeah. statement. You know, there's so many times in entrepreneurship where you just want to give up. We're like, yeah. oh man, nothing's going right. There's no like light at the end of the tunnel. But somehow you keep sticking with it. There's always some sort of light that comes through. You're like, okay. Right. What is right. that thing? You know? Right. Right. Yeah. And there's going to be a million of those barriers. 
Yeah. One of those things where you feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. But if you look hard enough and if you're creative, you can find a little sliver of light and just work towards that little sliver of light until it becomes bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, That's beautiful advice. And I really appreciate your advice about women empowerment and women entrepreneurship. I do believe, you know, there are a lot of industries that are dominated by men, but you know, well, we, every single industry, every single industry, <laughs> no matter what it is, it could be like fashion too, you know, or like makeup, it could be anything, but you know, we are just as capable, if not more, you know, and it's all about your mindset. And yeah. We love hearing from you too, because we are about women empowerment and Asian yeah. Hustle Network. And that has been our priority and our goal. And we stated it over and over, like LA Times and whatnot, like we want to empower Asian women to succeed. Yeah. That's yeah. why it's so great to have you on to the AHN podcast. Um, Wendy, so we are at the top of the hour. We would love to know where we can find out more about you and how our members can find out more about you. You can follow me. Um, at Senrev or at underscore Wendy underscore when on, on Instagram. Um, and you can always go on our website. You can email us on our website, senrev.com. That's S-E-N-R-E-V-E. Oh, the name Senrev means sense and dream in French because we're sensible and dreamy. We're like beautiful and functional. We're marrying traditional craftsmanship with innovative design and functionality. I love it. The yeah. bags are beautiful. Uh, <laughs> well, Maggie's birthday is coming up, so I guess I have a gift. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on this podcast, Wendy. Mm-hmm. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Right. Bye. Hey, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.